0: Well, uh, we'll get started here and uh, pick up with the psalms here. So let's pause for prayer. Our God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the provisions we have in Christ. We do thank you that it is your blood that covered all our sins. And Lord, we, out of hearts growing in grace, we want to serve you with gratitude and understand your word better that and we pray that you'd help us tonight. In Christ's name. Amen. Okay, I think last week um, I I had a mark here that we were left off on page thirty six. Is that right? Thirty eight. Okay, very good. That's, Psalm 48. forty eight. Oh sorry, that's where I have the paper clip. One page was dog eared and the other had a paper clip. Okay. <laughs> so we're we're just ready to start Psalm forty eight, I guess. So let's take a look. Let's open our Bibles to uh, Psalm 48. Remember, this is in this category where it's praise of God. Uh, praise Him sometimes to refer to. With this type of praise Him, remember Psalm 33? It's really extolling God's sovereignty, control, and creation and providence. With this one, it focuses on a city, the city of Zion. Uh, I know you probably are familiar with Zion from The Matrix. Mm-hmm. But, uh you <laughs> seen The Matrix? <laughs> I never saw I own the first one, but my wife will never let me watch it. She thinks Keanu Reeves is weird. Uh-huh. And he is. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's why it apart the part so well.
1: I saw
0: it, but I didn't understand it. Well, it's far out. It's part of being in the matrix. (laughs) So you probably got the point, Anita. (laughs) I mean that's the point. Well anyway, that's popularized the name Zion. That I think was a trilogy. Well, that's the unbiblical stuff. This is the biblical stuff about the real Zion. That's just a fiction and I mean I hope so. We may be in the Matrix if that isn't But with Psalm 48, it extols the city of Zion. Because that's the city God chose. So with Psalm 48, the psalmist joyfully extols the glory and security of Jerusalem. And I think this causal clause is very important. Because it is the Lord's chosen city to manifest His immediate presence. So it's because God chose it. Notice the three literary elements in Psalm 48. First of all, we have the introductory praise to God. Greatest Lord and most worthy of praise in the city of our God, His holy mountain, it is beautiful in its loftiness, the joy of the whole earth. Like the utmost height of Zaphon is Mount Zion, the city of the great king. God is in his citadel, he has shown himself to be her fortress. So, you can see here in the first three verses how the focus is on praising Zion. By the way, that's a key element for uh, the Old Testament saints. I think in the kingdom it's also some of this is idealized, you see that it's uh, it is beautiful and it's lofty. that's the joy of the whole earth. That's not the case now. in fact, that's the place they're still fighting over, but you know, I've got my money on the Jews winning <coughs> although the pretenders are still there, <laughs> so I uh, Tell my uh, poetic books class if uh, Abram would have grown in sanctification a little sooner in his life, we wouldn't have some of the problems we do today. I mean, isn't that true? Mm-hmm. So, here we can see the city stole. Uh Notice also on page 39 we have the motivation versus 4 to 11. When the kings joined forces, when they advanced together, they saw her and were astounded. They fled in terror, trembling seized them there, pain like that of a mountain in labor. You destroyed them like ships of Tarshish, shattered by an east wind. As we have heard, so we have seen. In the city of the Lord Almighty, in the city of our God, God makes us secure forever. Within your temple, O God, we meditate on your unfailing love. Like your name, O God, your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness. Mount Zion rejoices the village of Judah are glad because of your judgments. Well, in this song we can see that the motive here is really this is the city of God. That's why it's extolled. In fact, it's still extolled. I heard Charlotte Church sing a song about it. Uh, Jerusalem. Uh, She does it very well. But uh, when we went to Israel back in 2001, it is kind of what I say, breathtaking moment to think the Lord will return to the city now may I just put a plug in our schools what's called dispensational now the reason why we are dispensationalist because we think it's biblical as I see revelation progress there's a great emphasis on Jerusalem uh, Israel and it's does seem like that's picked up the prophetic passages and extol and you even see it in the book of Revelation. Now I know it's not the end thing today to be a dispensationalist. Uh, if you have an ESV study Bible, I can see an anti dispensational strength. I prefer the NIV because Ken Barker <laughs> was was the chair of the committee for the NIV. And he was a dispensationalist. But I think the Mark Devers of the world, the John Pipers, um, Al Mohler, these are not dispensationalists. Now, I like to listen to them, and I do. Just on this issue, I don't agree with them. In fact, I remember when John Piper was in town 15 years ago. Um, it was at some Presbyterian church, I think in Woodhaven, I don't know. Were you there, Kim?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Anybody? Mm-hmm. I do know that uh, I snuck away with Larry Roget and I was hoping we could kind of go incognito. But it was kind of packed to Pew for Inner City because they had three pews of people from Inner City. <laughs> and there murdered mm-hmm. some people from Euron Baptist Church. But they did not equal what Inner City has. Now why is <laughs> that the case? Because everybody reads their books. So, you know, I try to be even handed with our students. I thank God for what Piper's done in bringing theology back into the popular realm. I like his soteriology, his doctrines of grace. In fact, I agree with him. But, friends, I don't agree with him. Now, he will have a little bit more stock in a future kingdom because he is post-tribulational. They, they do have some stock. Now, but the others who are all millennials, they don't. So I really don't buy into any form of what's called replacement theology. Um, that is where the church replaces Israel. In fact, we had a lecture series earlier this spring with Michael Flock, he, he's a young leading dispensationalist who's written a dissertation on it. He gets a lot of feedback from, or he gets some feedback from the Devers and the Pipers of the world. But, um, you know, he's written a popular little book on dispensations. If you ever have a chance to get it, it's only 70 pages long, and he explains it very well. And it's an easy read. I read it on a plane to Saipan. <coughs> It's called Dispensationalism, or it could be Dispensations.
1: Michael.
0: It's by Michael Block, V-L-A-C-H, and Michael's his first name. But uh, sometimes I feel we get the short end of the stick. In fact, I didn't even call R.C. I mean, I didn't get to talk to him. They were running a diatribe against dispensationalism. So I called and said something to him. And you know, I just said, you know, a lot of people who are dispensationalists read table talk. So you don't think we can be a dispensationalist and hold to a reformed soteriology? The person was very nice. <laughs> He's speaking good things, but I think it is hard of hearts. He says they don't mix. Well, friends, there's nothing in dispensationalism that denies that. Uh, the doctrines of grace relate to soteriology, the doctrine of salvation the issues of of Jerusalem, Zion, the future kingdom, i say even pre-tribulationalism, really relates to what we call eschatology, the study of end times. So my my expectation is that Christ will rapture the church. And we will rule and reign with Him in the kingdom in some capacity. But uh, To me, I don't think there's any disconnect. I think Piper was here. I talked to him a little bit about that. But it was just in passing. I'm trying to be nice. He's trying to be nice. But I did want him to know that dispensationalists can like what he has to offer. So, and I corresponded a little bit with him. But it's not like we're bosom buddies. I don't want to apply that. I'm not. I know We talked about our experiences. I know my, I have two sons go to Bob Jones. His dad has been on the board of Bob Jones. And so there's a little tension, but I don't think my sons really like Bob Jones that well, quite right, right? <laughs> frankly. In fact, they've sworn that, you know, they may change their mind because Bob's got three girls. And what do you want when you have three girls? Balls around them.
1: <laughs>
0: Can you understand? Go figure. <laughs> I do. But, uh, you no, know, he says, now he won't send his kids to Bob Jones. And, but I could see those things even when they were there, my youngest son. He liked the education. He hated dormitory life. And so we're talking primarily about Bob Jones. And he's telling me a little bit about his dad. And, you know, Piper is a nice man. So we should rejoice that God has used him in that way, but that doesn't mean I agree with everything. Because you rejoice with some things of a person's ministry, doesn't mean you have to rejoice over everything. So I don't with that. So I see Zion here as a typical fire-breathing—no, I wouldn't say fire-breathing—but a typical academic dispensationalist would do it. It's usually pastors who are breathing out fire. So, do y'all see that in Pastor Ken?
1: <laughs>
0: he, he, he's a pathetic guy. <laughs> believe me. But I think he shows elements of great grace even with his uh, direct approach. Which, that's what you want in a pastor. You don't want him to cover up what he sees. But yet, uh, you do want him to show a little bit of grace, and he does. So, we thank God for that. Not Pastor Dorn, he's not a fire breather. Not, he's willing to defend the seminary or church. Now, he's not going to back off But he's not a mean guy. Oh. Now, I don't know. I wasn't a deacon when Ed was a deacon. Could he get pretty mean at times? No. Yeah, he was quite a contrast, I think, with Dr. Rice. (laughs) Now, I appreciated Dr. Rice. I just always knew I didn't want to get on his bad side. (laughs) Because that could have been bad. I replaced somebody to get on his bad side. And by the way, there was good reasons why Rice was upset about that. There was some very good reasons. And he got on Dr. Uh, Rice's bad side and he was gone. So was the New Testament man. So Dr. Combs and I replaced both of them. Some of the seminary students at that time said, I predict you'll be here about five years. Well, that's twenty-seven years later. <laughs> <laughs> Well, they liked the former teachers. And apparently they seemed to like us, and they were just saying, you could take all the garbage <laughs> around here. Well, I never really saw the garbage, but I wasn't a deacon. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, well, we just call Ed, po- poker face that. <laughs> well, anyway, that's Zion. Notice the apex of the motivation is in verse 8. That is the center point. Uh, as we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord Almighty in the city of her God God makes her secure now that was true in the Old Testament I think there's an expectation to the Millennial Kingdom then notice the concluding phrase in verses 12 to 14 walk about Zion, go around her, count her towers, consider well her ramparts, you her citadels, that you may tell of them to the next generation, for this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. Well, that's a great expectation for the Old Testament saints. May I say it's our expectation as well? We follow God, and He will be our guide forever and ever. So that's a very good psalm, but we're a little distant from it because we don't really appreciate fully the significance of Jerusalem just because we live in America. So but the Old Testament saying, in fact, if you went to the Middle East, uh, Zion is the place. You go down to the Wailing Wall and you can see... Uh, Jews down there with their black caps on, and you see some of them with braided hair, and then you see Arabs. It's uh, when we were there, you could cut the air between the Palestinians and the Jews. Oh, it was about a year after 2001 things really erupted. Well, I thank God we got in while the captain was good, <laughs> but we could see the uh, the whole strain. You know, uh, we did a Great Britain study tour. And, uh, you know, they have a lot of Muslims there. And so when we made the trip for two weeks, the connection was that we got out of Israel when the getting was good. Dr. Priest did not get out of uh, London when the getting was good. So we were over there, and I remember my wife and I, we went down to, you know, their trains, I forget what they're called. And some of our the people we were with, they got tickets and got on and rode around the city and my wife, we went down to the uh uh British Museum. So, you know, they were going one way, we were going the other way, but we had to get our money exchanged to go back to the States. And it's uh there's all kind of people from all over the world there. So it is kind of a neat experience but you saw these angry-looking people walking around. I mean, some of the British people look pretty mean, too. Mm-hmm. But there's some that just have venom in their eyes. And I told my wife, I said, you know, uh, London's going to have some real problems here with the Muslim population. Everything I read is ready to explode. Well, we leave. Dr. Priest stays behind to study. And uh, remember when they had their terrorist strike? What was it? Bus 11? We saw that bus go out. <laughs> so, at the time we didn't realize what was going to happen. But my wife and I were home and you know we started praying for Dr. Christ. <laughs> so he, but he was secure. And he let his wife know that. But it uh, seems like whenever the seminary goes on these types of trips, it's a braiding place for trouble. <laughs> so I'm just going to stay home. <laughs> But no, I'm serious. When we were in Israel, the air was so thick between the Palestinian and the Jews, especially around the temple complex, that uh, you could cut the air. So when things started, well, we weren't surprised because you could see the uh, antithesis, the hatred between Jew and Arab, Jew and Palestinian guess they prefer to be called, but they're still of that same stock. Well, the city that they're concerned about is Jerusalem. And friends, that city's going to survive. It may be bombed again, but it is going to survive. So I look forward to seeing that in the kingdom when there will not be division between Jew, and Palestinian. May I say it will only be redeemed Israel and Gentile Christians like us who will see it. So that will be a great time. So when we have our problems we need to think the best is yet to come. As you get older, as you get different infirmities, as you see your children suffer, you know, it's sometimes hard to understand, but we need to keep our focus on the king who will establish his kingdom. And we should look forward to the time when these things said in the Old Testament are fully realized in the Millennial Kingdom. And I take it that the Millennial Kingdom is kind of a down payment for the eternal state. So that's our hope friends. So I don't look forward to being, can I say it, un- unbodied or disembodied spirit? I think temporarily when we die, our spirits go to be with God, with Christ. But, can I say, we're not living the normal existence there. We are designed to live life with bodies. That's the way it will be in the kingdom. So we will be reunited in a resurrected body. I just hope that I'm back in the 35 model. <laughs> I'm hoping that I don't end up there at 60. Uh, although I'm going to be 61 here pretty quick. So. <laughs> but I probably won't care. Just as long as I can worship Christ. That will be the paramount thing to us. But since I do believe we're, we're created to live with a body, I am looking for that time when I will be reunited with my glorified body. And so I won't be stuck with some of the infirmities. You know, some uh, have heart problems. Some have uh, feet problems. i got a head problem. <laughs> you know, a brain problem. Uh, that's what my wife says. I think it's pretty good. But, uh, you know, those things will be be better no matter what state we're at. Because God wants it so that we can fully worship Him. And that is going to take, can I say, a perfect body? Whatever that is. But to fully experience the kingdom reality, we need bodies. So uh, I think that's why the New Testament puts an emphasis on the resurrection body. So that's what we look forward to. Anyway, that's Psalm 48. Um, now, are there any questions on that before we wrap up is, things on Psalm 48? Is, is Tarshish a country <coughs> or is it an area? It's an what area. Where does the ships of Tarshish?
1: And the note I have it down here says around the Mediterranean.
0: Well, I have assumed that these are ships that emanate from Tarshish where Job was going to. But see, uh, Jerusalem... More, I shouldn't say Jerusalem, the Tel Aviv area, mm-hmm. the coast there. That was that was a big activity for uh, sea merchants. Right. So you would see the outstanding ships of that day, and Tarshish was known for good ships. So, anyway, that's uh, <clears throat> oh, that's the way I've taken it. Okay. Any other questions? But let's look on page 40. I list some other songs of Zion, 46, 76, 84, 87, 122. Notice the content. The message of this psalm is a call to worship God by extolling His holy city. But we need to be focused. It's still worship of God. One of the means that we worship our sovereign God is by extolling what he is, can I say, uh, affirmed as being positive, what he encourages us to look highly upon. But if we keep our vision only on the city and don't lift it up towards Mm -hmm. God, we'll be utterly deficient. We'll be utterly deficient. I've sometimes used an analogy of this. I've often thought, how do we get people to worship the Creator rather than the creation? Now, I admit, I'm still struggling to fully worship the Creator. And we all are in our sanctification process. Some are at one end of the spectrum, and others are a little close, closer to that glorified state. I don't think anybody knows. But I think if we're growing in humility and our inner- the doctrine of Christ, we're getting better. But it does seem to me that if our focus becomes on the holy city by itself, then we'll be unbelievers. That's what the Jews are focused on. They're an unbelieving country today. The Palestinians are focused on that. But friends, that's not enough. That should direct us to the worship of God. So I've used this analogy. I think it's a pretty good one. But what would you think of me, in fact, I might use it when I preached here before. <laughs> it's a common one because I think it drives home the point. What would you think of me if, uh, you know, I tell my wife I love her before we go to bed and, you know, pretty soon, you know, I take off my ring. I mean, she's fallen asleep and I kiss my ring and I say, I love you. <laughs> now you'd say, well, you're crazy. <laughs> But friends, I'm afraid that's what we do with creation. We love the creation more than the creator. My love should be directed to my wife, not an object that represents our love. If I do that, you think I'm nuts. And rightly so. But aren't we all a little nuts at this point? We we love the created order. I mean, I know people who love their families exceedingly, I do too, but friends, all that should be directed towards love for God. And to fall short of it, we are really showing that uh, we still have an idolatrous heart. So I think that's what's going on in the current day. They're looking to the city, but real worship means taking your focus beyond the city right up to heaven. And that's what God's really looking for, our worship of Him. But you can do it by extolling the city when you've got God in the right place. So, anyway, that's the best analogy I can give on that. Uh, You can see the outline there. Let's move on to the Psalm of Praise to Israel's Covenant Lord in Psalm 100. (coughs) This here focuses on Israel's God. Can I say it's the God who gave the covenant? Uh, Now, he's given Israel a number of covenants, so it could be a composite of all of them. But I think in particular, there is an extolling of him with the Mosaic Covenant, because that's his constitution for his people. So here... This is a call to worship the God who gave the covenant, the covenant Lord. In fact, do you notice the way I have Lord written? A song of praise to Israel's covenant Lord. Notice I have a capital L and three small caps. I try to do that whenever the name reflects Yahweh. Yahweh, you may have heard, even Jehovah. That name repre- represents God's covenant faithfulness. So it, it's worshiping a God who keeps his promises. So that's a specific name. It's not like Elohim. Elohim's general. Uh, Genesis 1 1 sheep Barah Elohim. Et Peshhomayim by Et Haaretz. One of my favorite verse, first verses. I think it was the first verse I taught my children. But My wife put a bubble in, or put a pin in my balloon. She says, what does that mean if they don't know what it means? (laughs) I said, it's it's good to impress some of my teachers. (laughs) So we pretty quickly eliminated that. But they know a few verses in Hebrew. Well, that's just because I was on teaching Hebrew. I was in the early phases when I was doing my doctoral work and stuff like that. So When they were kids, they could they could quote a couple Hebrew verses, which I thought was pretty good. In fact, I can still remember when I had Bob in seminary. He came in with the ability to speak better Hebrew than even the smartest students that we had in the seminary. Well, that's because of his dad. <laughs> it wasn't because of Bob. <laughs> He's a praise <pretty> sinner. <laughs> But, you know, uh, sanctified by God's saving grace and all that good stuff. But nevertheless, that was my hang-up as a developing Hebrew teacher. Now today, they would not own up to that. I know my youngest son, he would never be saying anything about that. And my daughter will just say, i got bigger things in life. (laughs) But Bob will still do it. So, at least that's good. Well, let's look at this. So this is God's covenant. This is Israel's covenant, Lord. The mood that dominates the psalms of praise is joyfulness to Israel's covenant Lord. Look at Psalm 100. Look at the introductory praise to God in verses 1 and 2. Shout for joy to the Lord all the earth. Worship the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful song. Well, notice with this uh, introductory praise, the focus is on praising God. Shouting joy to God. In fact, he appeals to all the earth. Uh, they're called upon to serve God with gladness. Uh, come before Him with joyful singing. What I like about this this emphasizes the way can I say the normal Christian life should be. The normal life for an Old Testament saint. God does want joyfulness. Now I don't know that that means that God wants us be happy, happy. I think it's really more the joy that comes with being content in Him. Now, some people express it differently than others. Some are overflowing. I'm not a real overflowing guy except for when I got mad at my children. (laughs) I mean, that's when it overflowed. (laughs) But, you know, I never raised my voice to them now or anything like that, but when they were kids and they had it coming to them, I raised more than my voice. <laughs> I wasn't joyful at those times. Well, I'm joyful with my granddaughters. I mean that's something to rejoice over. So I always tell them, 'em, don't be too hard on your children. And they said, Well, what Bob will say what you did with me was good. <laughs> I said, Well, don't that make that excuse for spanking them too hard. <laughs> well, those things those things are good. Uh, my normal personality would be a little bit more reserved. Uh, Other people are more uh, happy, bubbly, uh, things like that. Others are very somber looking. Well, I don't care if they're somber looking as long as they're rejoicing in the Lord. Some of this is personality. But I know, well, we've had some people in inner city come to our church and you all know, see the hands lifted in the air. I mean, I don't care. But I do think that there is something that's corporate worship. We're not trying to draw attention to an individual. So we worship in a corporate style of worship. But we do get visitors and nowadays nobody says anything to them. In the old days, somebody would say something to them. We're not Pentecostal. Well, no longer do you have to be Pentecostal to raise your hands in you in the air. I can name you names that you people would know where I'll see the hands lifted like this. Which is shocking to me. But I'm not a real emotional guy. So that's harder for me to identify. Uh, if you go up to uh, Piper's church, Bethlehem Baptist, now he doesn't really lift his hands in the air. I've been up to his church and you know, not everybody was lifting their hands in the air. I wasn't. I really don't feel comfortable doing it. And furthermore, I don't have a rhythm. <laughs> I mean, that's the real issue. <laughs> I've been to Africa where they do that. They clap. I clap when I'm there. I guess if everybody in the building had their hands up, I'd probably have mine like this. But the point is, that's just, just not what I feel comfortable with. I suspect most of you feel the same way because you're Midwesterners. You don't really live in the big D. So I think that affects us differently in how we express worship. But, friends, if you're joyful in your heart, that's what counts, as long as the joy's in the Lord. And so he is saying that. But I do meet Christians who are always sad. And that is distressing because they shouldn't be. Now, they may be physically hurting. There's things we don't like in life. Uh, You know, I've got a disease called sensory polyneuropathy. I can't hold my hands straight anymore and my feet always hurt, so I take a heavy dose of medicine. If you don't uh, proportion it right, I started to fall off a platform when I was teaching Chinese leaders because I reacted to it because I hadn't slept much. Well, there's things like that I don't like. I wish it was different. You know, my wife was in an accident four years and she's constantly having to go to the doctor. She goes to a doctor who works with car accidents and sets up physical therapy and she has to do a regimen of exercises. Well, that's not like 10 years ago. She was able to work hard. Now she's become lazy, a sluggard.
1: <laughs> no, my wife <laughs> oh it is yeah <laughs> I say that it
0: just my wife is an extremely hard worker, and one of her problems is is that when she overdoes it, her back goes out again. Well, everybody's had some things like that, but why should we be sad about it? We just need to move on, and, you know we may cry and pray about it, and I accept this as my thorn in the flesh. Uh, that's the way my wife should see her accident. So, to view it any other way can lead us to depression, mm-hmm. discouragement. And friends, that is a problem. So, know, what I want you to notice is this is something that is joyful. So, notice with the motivation for praising God, that's verse 3. Know that the Lord is God. In fact, I think the real emphasis is know the Lord savingly that He is God. It is He who made us and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Notice he concludes this with praise to God in verse 4. He says, Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to him and praise his name. Notice further, he gives a concluding motivation for praising God. So we started with our introduction. We had our motivation. Then we had our uh, concluding praise of God. he comes back to another motivation. Notice the four. For the Lord is good and his love endures forever. His faithfulness continues through all generations. Well, friend, that's something to be excited about. But that is our God. Well, uh, on the next page, before we move on, are there any questions about that? It's a pretty easy psalm. Mm-hmm. I can preach this in 15 minutes. So if I know this is supposed to be a short message, I call upon Psalm 24 Psalm 100. <coughs> so, you know, I've been an after-dinner speaker at a couple of Thanksgiving... Well, I'm sorry, there's probably one... The other one, I just preached it on another occasion. But I knew I had only a short period of time. I preached Psalm 124 because it's short. Mm-hmm. After dinner, speakers should learn a lesson. <laughs> People have just eaten. They're tired. And uh, they're starting to belch and whatever else goes <laughs> with it. Why prolong the agony? <laughs> <laughs> that one not year at the seminary. We had a banquet and our speakers spoke for one hour. And the people working in the back were just, dude. Uh, In fact, Phil Dauberton and I, we always laugh about it because that was unexpected. We didn't have them back to do another dinner, though. (laughs) Well, you need to be clear with people, and I think when we send out letters for people to uh, preach in our seminary chapel, we give them so much time. Well, they may go over a little bit, but they still have a certain limitation. They feel compelled. And thank God for the bells. What would it be better to do is just have a little door that drops out when it gets to be a certain time. To do it.
1: <laughs> but have you ever
0: been to an old country church where they'll have a, bat- a little baptistry under the uh, platform? Now, yeah, where I pastored outside of Columbia City, I had a friend that. Right underneath there was a door. And what they would do is when they had baptismals, they would move the pulpit and right there lift that up. (laughs) It'd go down. (laughs) Well, that's what we need. (laughs) I'm going to lobby for that and then just have it automatically time. So we're no respecter of persons. After all, we do believe in baptism. (laughs) So, but those those things I think are important. So I do pick out psalms to preach on certain occasions because they fit in. Psalms of praise I use for praiseworthy things. Um, people like psalms of confidence. I think there's a place to encourage the people. of God. I think there's sometimes where we have to chide them a little bit. And it may be that the church is suffering. I preach a psalm of lament. So I think these are good for various situations. If you're going to do a little Bible study, these are great. (coughs) Because uh, today it seems like people are interested in two things. Well, really, three things. They're they're interested in the doctrine of salvation. That's a hot-button issue. Another one's creation. Uh, Another one's the Psalms use it in the city when I teach understanding <coughs> the Psalms, I always have a good number of people. Because they've been reading these things through the years and they want somebody to tell them, how do we interpret these things? Well, I think through the genres, that does help us see how we approach And if you've got an NIV study Bible, it's going to tell you in the notes. So sometimes it's helping people use the notes in their NIV study Bible. Uh, now, the is pretty good on the praise Psalms and all that stuff, though. But uh, I'm still an NIV man. Mm-hmm. But uh, since Zondervance, whatever they're going to do is they'll say, the old NIV's not going to be <coughs> at a certain point. And I'm looking to see what your uh, church does. The question is, with the new NIV, will they have too much of that gender-inclusive stuff? Because that's really why so many quit using the TNIV. But, you know, I suspect they're not going to be at a comfortable level for us because they're still dealing with the same translation committee. So maybe your church will go to the E.S.C. I don't know. Well, we'll see. I'm not going to hold my breath on that. So, anyway, but that's Psalm 100. Notice uh, I give the message here to point C. It's to gratefully worship Israel's covenant-keeping God. Now, we often don't understand covenant keeping, but friends, we do participate in the New Covenant. But I think generally, I would say the promise keeping God. Because that's what really Israel is extolling God for. He's keeping the promises. He's committed in His covenants. So I think for us, we can celebrate the same thing because we have a lot of promises in the New Testament. And so we celebrate over those. So, I usually will say, like if I'm preaching this psalm, my conclusion is, we need to gratefully worship our God who keeps all His promises. Thank God for this promise. He said to His people, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. What I like about that verse in Hebrews 13 is a triple negative. It means, I will never, no, never leave you. Now, friends, that's a great promise. Or Philippians 1.16. Or one 1.6. Being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you will continue it until the day of Jesus Christ. That may be in the King James Version. I'm trying to eradicate it, but some things are just so ingrained, I probably never will. But the King James was a good translation at the time. The problem is its time's over. So... uh I know. <laughs> no, no, no. You might not believe me, but <laughs> take my word. I've seen the sales with Donna Van. It's about... Now, we, there are a lot of King James-only people. But, uh, <clears throat> you know, I always recommend new churches that they use the NIV, NASB, or the ESV. So that's my translation of choice. Okay, well, the we're going to focus on this. Let's see, I think we have... Two more Wednesdays. We're gonna go through the kingship and covenant renewal psalms. We'll look at Psalm two next week. Then uh we might not finish that, but in the last week we'll look at the Psalm Trust from Psalm 121. Oh yeah, and then we have wisdom psalms. So we'll have three different sections that we'll have to look at, but I'll spend the predominant amount of time on these kingship and covenant renewal psalms. So let's take a look at these. These psalms celebrate and affirm loyalty to God as king, also to the theocratic king and God's covenant. As you can see, this category has three subcategories. First, we have divine kingship psalms. That is, they are celebrating God as king, as the universal king. Uh, I don't like using universal, but may I say, for God, that's true. (laughs) He's gone over the universe. Second, as you can see with my initial description, this includes what we call theocratic kingship psalms. These are also called royal psalms that celebrate the Davidic dynasty and its universal kingdom. They're also called messianic psalms. I have reasons why I prefer to call them either royal or theocratic kingship psalms, but that, that's about another three-hour discussion. We don't have time for it. So I'll just give you the overflow. By theocratic, notice you have Theos. Remember Theo Bell played for four time Super Bowl winners in in the 70s? Theo. It's probably short for Theodore. But you know what's in Theodore? God. Theos. Uh, So notice this is Theo, God, Cratic, Rule. So this is a God rule kingship song. But what's the, Is that actually God? Well, what it turns out is Israel's called a theocracy. And with that theocracy they have a king and we'll see if he comes to the Davidic dynasty. That is the theocratic king. He's king over the theocracy. Now notice, this is something given to him by God. So the real theocrat makes the Davidic dynasty can I say uh, vice regents not co-regents co regent makes it sound like God and the king are on the same level well that would be idolatry it's God ruling who is appointed king so David is the theocratic king Solomon will be the theocratic king They'll have some bad ones, and they have some good ones. But these are theocratic kings. That's what these celebrate. And really, what you're looking at to is the Davidic dynasty. I think somebody's got a phone call. <laughs> <laughs>
1: uh, just in
0: case you haven't heard. first time it ever rang in here. Uh, <laughs> ever. Well, I'm just toying with you. <laughs> um, so, the key with these psalms is that they celebrate the Davidic dynasty, his universal, maybe I would prefer to say worldwide kingdom. These Psalms are joined by their focus on Israel, Israel, Israelite king. The basis for these Psalms are the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel 7, 1 Chronicles 17. These Psalms may focus on the importance of the Davidic line and its relation to God. As is the case in Psalm 2, Psalm 89, Psalm 132, Psalm 18 is called a royal thanksgiving psalm. So it's a it contains elements related to the Davidic covenant, but it's also primarily focused on thanksgiving, thanking God for answering your prayer. Um, also, Psalm 45 focuses on a royal wedding. I suspect that David wrote that psalm in anticipation of Solomon's wedding. Therefore, the focus of these psalms is the Davidic king, but it can refer to various phases (coughs) of kingship. The remaining royal psalms are Psalm 21, 72, 101, 110, 144. The royal psalms are especially significant for Christians because they provide the background to find their culmination in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, it's very important for Christ to be all he is, to be king in Jerusalem, is that he has to be in the right family line. He's got to be part of the Davidic dynasty. So what's significant for us is we see with all of the Davidic kings They have foibles. They sin. The ultimate, the culmination is Christ. Christ is king. We see that in his first advent. Uh, He did not set up the earthly kingdom at that time. But he did establish who he is and he did what he had to do. He had to die on the cross to save his people. That was a primary thing in his mission. So, that bloodshed at Calvary was good for us, good for people in his day. May I say that blood had to also be good for the Old Testament saints? They could not be saved just based on their animal sacrifices. Those are incomplete. That's why they had to keep on offering more sacrifices. The only one who could provide for eternal salvation is Christ. So I understand in the Old Testament when somebody actually believed God looked at them through the future cross. And so that future blood, you know, in some sense, it's put on hold for the Old Testament saint. I don't think fully. But I think there's some sense that it hasn't been actualized. Only in that sense. But it's only the blood of Christ that can save us from all our sins. That has to be the case with the Old Testament saint. Because depraved sinners have committed even one infraction. It's against an infinite God. So it requires a supreme sacrifice. And uh, may I say it does seem to me that the blood of Christ does not cleanse the reprobate or his blood is shed in vain. So, to me, I see tremendous value in the blood of Christ. That is what pardoned my sin. You say, well, how do I know whether that applies to me or someone else? Friends, believe. (laughs) That's the issue. Do you repent and believe? And if you have been regenerated, you will repent and believe. And the blood of Christ covers all our sins, past, present, and future. That's a wonderful thing. But the Davidic Psalms set this up. (laughs) That's why, to me, they're so wonderful. So we will look at Psalm 2, but there's a third category. Two Psalms, Psalm 50 and 81, are intended to encourage Israel to renew her allegiance to God in the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, We won't look at those, but we will look at divine kingship. Notice uh, here this celebrates God as king. Uh, Look at Psalm 47. We have an introductory called Praise Israel's God. And notice, He's victorious over all the earth. You can see something of the flow here. Uh, Psalm. Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to God with cries of joy. How awesome is the Lord Most High, the great King over all the earth. He subdues so nations under us. So notice, this causes Israel to praise God who is victorious over all the earth. Notice verses 5 and 6, they celebrate praise or celebrate the Lord's victorious rule. Verse 5, God has ascended amid the shouts of joy of the Lord amid the sounding of the trumpets. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our King. Sing praises. So that's the celebration of the Lord's victorious rule. And notice the emphasis here is on God's ruling. Notice further in verses 7 and 9 the concluding call to praise God. For God is the King of all the earth. Sing to Him a psalm of praise. God reigns over all the nations. God is seated on His holy throne. The nobles of the nations assemble as the people of the God of Abraham. For the kings of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Even unsaved kings belong to God. And He will do with them what is just. So, this is a psalm that does celebrate God's rule over all the earth. Notice the basic message is on... Psalm or on page forty three. The message of the psalm is to celebrate the universal rule of Israel's God. Universal worldwide. Yep. Just don't make me a universalist and I'll be I'll be content. <laughs> okay, well we're out of time. I went to two minutes over time. Uh you can blame me. You can also blame Jim. <laughs> But <laughs> so we were getting through Psalm 47. take it. <laughs> one, where's <or> the other? it. has been at least a couple hours since
1: I've been playing